Today on Inside Politics, epic failure, dysfunction, humiliation, and inability to govern. And that's the most charitable way to describe congressional Republicans right now. A stunning series of mind-boggling defeats and self-owns. And minutes from now, Senate Republicans will almost certainly torpedo the most conservative border bill before them in decades. Plus, a win for, quote, none of these candidates. Nikki Haley loses Nevada's non-binding primary, even though she was the only candidate on the ballot. Her campaign insists it's full steam ahead. And the Trump campaign's own existential moment. All eyes are on the U.S. Supreme Court preparing to hear arguments on whether Donald Trump can be disqualified under the Constitution's insurrection ban. A sign of just how serious the former president takes this, he's staying out of Washington, uncharacteristically trying to avoid a political spectacle. I'm Dana Bash. Let's go behind the headlines and inside politics. We start right here in our nation's capital, where Senate Republicans are about to kill the border deal. The very kind of tough on immigration policy that they themselves demanded. The reason is simple. It's what Donald Trump wants. He'd rather rant on the campaign trail about the unprecedented surge of migrants than let his party rewrite antiquated laws in the hopes of starting to solve the border crisis. If it were only today's vote, it would be tough enough. But it's not. The collapse of this immigration deal is only piling on to a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day for congressional Republicans. There was the hyped vote to impeach the Homeland Security Secretary. It failed. Minutes later, a standalone package for Israel also failed. Speaker Johnson is new to the job and maybe didn't learn one of the cardinal rules of the House. Don't put anything on the floor unless you definitely have the votes. Well, moments ago, Johnson took questions from our reporters, including our own Manu Raggio. Some of your critics will say this shows your inexperience. And Congressman Massey says getting rid of Kevin McCarthy was an unmitigated disaster for your party. What do you say to that? Well, it, look, it, it, it was a mess what happened here, but we're cleaning it up. And Massey's one of my dear friends and colleagues. And, and uh, I, I don't think that this is a reflection on the leader. It's a reflection on the body itself and the place where we've come in this country. Manu, we've seen a lot in our time, especially me. Can you please put this into context, uh, starting with what we're about to see, just looking ahead to the next hour in the United States Senate? Yeah, look, the last 24 hours really tells the story of the 118th Congress, which has been almost the inability to govern, driven in large part by Republican divisions in this narrowly divided House. We saw this last night, those two failed votes that you mentioned, but time and again, even doing the basic essence of governing, whether it's keeping the government open, that has been proven to be enormously difficult. We saw the first ever ouster of a sitting speaker. We saw a sitting speaker have a difficult time getting the votes to do that. And the only real major accomplishment is to avoid a national debt default that this Congress was able to accomplish. And now you're dealing with huge international and domestic crises and in, unable to deal with those as well. And that has caused enormous frustration in the ranks. I spent the morning talking to a wide range of Republicans, some of the most conservative ones and some of the ones in swing districts. And all of them say the same thing, that they are frustrated about their own inability to govern. I had many people reach out to me via text message and say, what the hell are you guys doing up there? I think our base is a little frustrated. We may have the gavel, 
but we're not acting like we're in the majority. Curious what your constituents kind of view, how they view Congress and, and, and the House right now. Yeah, it, you know, we have work to do. It's frustrating for people like me. I want to get things done. That's why I ran for Congress. And it's been a frustrating couple of days. So the last question, the last comment coming from Jen Kiggins, who is a member in a swing district in Virginia, expressing her frustration. And this comes, of course, Dana, as we are heading into yet another complicated episode for the new speaker. There's a vote. They have to keep the government open by early March, not to mention how to deal with the crises in Ukraine and in Israel and dealing with other allies overseas and the border issue that they have essentially scuttled as the House Senate Republicans cut a deal with the White House. So many questions for this new new speaker as they try to figure out a way forward, but don't have any plan to do just that. Yeah. No, plans uh, have not worked out so well so far. Manu, thank you so much for your excellent reporting. As always, I want to bring in a panel here of excellent reporters, PBS NewsHour's Laura Barone-Lopez, Carl Hulse of The New York Times, and CNN's Eva McKend. Uh, Carl Hulse, <laughs> I said uh, to Manu that uh, I've seen a lot in, uh, in Congress you and I have seen a lot in Congress. We covered uh, for many, many years uh, the <coughs> halls of that building. And um, I just want you to put in context what we are seeing now versus before, because it's easy to say, oh, oh chaos in Congress. Mm -hmm. Understandable, because that's not exactly a new label. This does feel different. Yeah, yesterday it felt to me like the stock market crash of 29, but for the Republicans, the bottom kept falling out of the market all day. Mm. Every time you looked somewhere, something uh, was happening. I mean, the dysfunction is really on one side here, too. And a lot of times in Congress, you go, oh, you know, both sides are having problems. This is a, in one party, right, not, right, not right, one side of the right, Capitol. Right, and people, but this is really Republican uh, dysfunction. And I saw one of the members there said, we're not acting like we have a majority. They really don't have a majority. Yeah. They have no functioning majority. And that's what the problem is here. And uh, that was a day like I have not seen on both sides. And, you know, being speaker is really hard and it takes some experience. And the people who have done this before worked up through the ranks, had experience. He's, he's coming at it. And, you know, to, to miss a vote like that on such a huge issue the impeachment issue right and to be outflanked by the democrats and al green wasn't supposed to be there and so dramatic but it's a classic in right? on a wheelchair There's always, hospital when they when they come in you remember mccain's yeah. thumbs down and mm -hmm. ted kennedy came for a vote mm -hmm. i mean but you you're supposed to know that stuff if There's, you're yeah, running the place yeah. and laura i want to bring you in but i want to listen to a bit more of what we heard from the speaker just moments ago and i think this is kind of the quote that we are going to be looking at and we are going to be picking a part the first thing he says listen democracy is messy we live in a time of divided government uh, we have a razor thin uh, margin here and every vote counts we're governing here sometimes it's messy you're seeing the messy sausage making the, the process of democracy play out and uh, it's not always clean it's not always pretty but the job will be done at the end of the day yeah I mean just to Mitch McConnell said that uh, earlier, I think it was yesterday, he said, look, we don't have the majority in the Senate. It's divided government, which is what Speaker Johnson just acknowledged there. And yet um, with divided government, that means you don't get everything you want. It means that in the Senate border deal, which is a compromise, um, that's probably the closest that Republicans are gonna get to something they want. And then when it comes to the impeachment vote and then the subsequent failure of the Israel funding vote, I mean, things like that, like you two covered the Hill longer than I did, but when I was there, so 
stuff like that just didn't happen. You have entire operations, whether it's the House Speaker, the Majority Whip, others, their entire job is to know how many votes there are and there aren't, and whether or not they should even bring something like that to the floor. And typically, you wouldn't bring something to the floor if you knew and, you didn't have the vote. And, and this might sound to some people like process, but it's not. It's about what Manu was saying. It's about governing. It's about people putting their officials, uh, their elected uh, representatives in place and hoping that they know how to govern. And the series of events we saw yesterday, frankly, what we're going to see in about an hour in the Senate, um, it, I'm sure puts that into question. You're out in the campaign trail talking to voters all the time. Yeah, they certainly have egg on their face. It doesn't inspire confidence and it calls into question well, what have House Republicans done since they regained their majority? They're going to have to make this case to voters that uh, they should ha expand their power in Congress, and yet this is what they have been able to achieve? Uh, not much. Carl, I want to show our viewers what you wrote uh, in part today. First of all, the headline kind of says it all. On the border, Republicans set a trap then fell into it. Their idea was to tie approval of military assistance to Ukraine to tough border security demands that Democrats would never accept. But Democrats tripped them up by offering substantial, almost unheard of concessions on immigration policy. Democrats in tough races in both the House and Senate will now be able to say they were willing to accept stringent new border controls, but Republicans killed the effort. This is a big, big part of the dynamic here, the mess here that we cannot forget politically. Right. The Democrats kept saying yes. They kept saying yes. Now, whether this was a calculated effort to draw them into the trap that Republicans had set, you know, people will say different things. But as Laura knows better than I, I think, this, the, the concessions that they were making on immigration were considerable. Republicans would never get another bill like this. Democrats they really got, a, like, nothing. They mm -hmm. literally got nothing. Yeah. They gave. All they did was give. Mm -hmm. And then at the end of the day, the Republicans, you know, within seconds of that bill coming out Sunday night, thumbs down. This is what happens when Donald Trump gets involved in policy. Okay. That's a very good segue to what we're about to do, which is go to our Kristen Holmes, because Donald Trump is certainly flexing his muscle this week. Without a doubt, he is why the border bill collapsed. He wants to shake up uh, the top of the party, the RNC. CNN is told that RNC chair Ronna McDaniel plans to step down if and when Trump becomes the party's nominee. So, Kristen, give us the latest. Let's just start on the McDaniel of it all and then more broadly about um, sort of the strings that he's already pulling in a big way uh, that have to do with legislating and politics. Yeah, unsurprisingly, Dana, when we're talking about Ronna McDaniel, it's, it comes to Donald Trump, you know, with friends like these. Remember, McDaniel was a huge ally of Donald Trump's, helped him win Michigan in 2016. In fact, she was appointed to the RNC by him in 2016 and, as head of the RNC, helped pay for his legal bills until he announced that he would be running a third bid for the White House. Uh, but in recent years, he has turned on her. It started in 2020 when he has complained privately. He didn't think the RNC or Ronna McDaniel had enough safeguards in place, essentially, to help him challenge the election in 2020. He complained that she held debates when he didn't want there to be debates. He complained that she didn't pay enough of his legal bills. And more recently, they were complaining, Trump and his team, about the lack of fundraising that the RNC had. They released pretty dismal numbers in the last week. So, as you have said, Ron McDaniel telling Donald Trump that she will step down if and when he is the nominee. But the real 
really big picture here is clear. Donald Trump didn't like Ronna McDaniel anymore. Ronna McDaniel is stepping down. Donald Trump didn't want a border deal. There is no border deal, or at least likely no border deal. Every single thing that Donald Trump is trying to get right now from Republicans he is getting, he is taking full control of the party. It feels exactly like it did in 2016 as he inched towards the nomination there. And it should be clear, Republicans, even those who were not fans of Donald Trump, all seem to be falling in line. Such an important big picture uh, statement uh, baked, based on and, and baked in reporting that you've been doing. Thank you so much for that, Kristen. Uh, let's just quickly touch on Ronna McDaniel because this is really fascinating. Um, yeah, her fundraising numbers weren't great. And, uh, you know, talk to people at the RNC, they argue, might not be wrong about this, that when there is an active primary going on, fundraise, uh, donors give to the campaigns, they don't give to the party. Okay, fine. But more importantly, it's just, it's actually amazing that she hasn't gone sideways with Donald Trump so far. I mean, she's, I believe, the longest serving RNC chair. He picked her. She was chair of the state party in Michigan. He wanted her in there. She got in there. And she's tried to do as much as she can for him. But at a certain point, everybody goes sideways with Donald Trump because it's almost impossible to live up to the things that you want. When he's saying, do not have debates when there was a field of a dozen people because I should be the nominee. I mean, that is that really realistic? I mean, it just underscores, amplifies that no matter what you do for Trump, it's never going to be enough. And eventually there's going to be an expiration date on every relationship. But really, you know, in this campaign, he has everything to lose. It's all on the line. Mm -hmm. The stakes could not be higher for the former president. And so that is why he is trying to line things up with at, at every corner for every pocket for there to be just fierce unquestioning allies. Yeah, I mean, just go back to a story in your paper back in 2018. The headline was a Romney who was unfailingly loyal to Trump. She's not even called that anymore. Now she just, she calls herself Ronna McDaniel, which is her married name. She was Ronna Romney McDaniel. And this said, as for her own sur surname, she insisted that the president had never asked her to drop it outright. He raised the issue, she said, only lightheartedly in front of her husband. And she said she liked the brevity of her name without it. My husband and the president joked about it. My hus husband likes it too. Not said here is that Mitt Romney is not exactly um, the top of the Donald Trump fan club. No, he's not. I'm Her mean, uncle. Right. And he's definitely not the top of the fan club. I mean, he voted to convict and he's someone who believes that uh, that the continued lies about the 2020 election is not something that the party should be behind. And yet we're hearing that someone being considered to replace uh, Ronna McDaniel is an election denier, which to me just speaks to the fact that that is now the ultimate litmus test for whether or not you are a Trump Republican or you're called a rhino by Trump. Such an important point. I have to ask you about Mitch McConnell <laughs> because he falls into the category of he doesn't Donald Trump not only doesn't like Mitch McConnell, he really, really doesn't like Mitch McConnell. And therefore, much of the Republican base no longer likes Mitch McConnell. You have covered him for a long time. You know him really better than most reporters. And I want you to listen to what several of the rank and file Republican senators said about Mitch McConnell yesterday. I followed the instructions of my conference who were insisting that we tackle this in October. Things have changed over the last four months. And it's been made perfectly clear by the speaker that he wouldn't take it up even if we sent it to him, 
And so I think that's probably why most of our members think we ought to have opposition tomorrow. Okay, that was obviously Mitch McConnell himself, but he makes the second point that I was going to make, Carl, which is to hear Mitch McConnell saying, I followed the instructions of my conference, is something that I'm not really used to hearing him say. He is a very firm leader historically. Now let's listen to what some of his rank and file members have said. Everyone here also supported a leadership challenge to Mitch McConnell in November. Uh, I think a Republican leader should actually lead this conference and should advance the priorities of Republicans. It's a failure of leadership that we've gotten to this point. And yes, I think they're out of touch on that particular issue. So this just blew up in Leader McConnell's face. The problem for Mitch McConnell here is that he's more in tune on this issue with Chuck Schumer than the far right of his uh, own conference. You hear this. There's no, really no way for them to knock him off. But it's, it's a reflection of his weakened position that they even stand there and do that. They would never do that in the past. But I will just say he has been routinely underestimated. Senator Hawley, many of his detractors have been running their mouths for years, mm -hmm. and they have failed to pick him off in a leadership challenge. So I would be surprised if that changed. Speaking as a former reporter covering the Kentucky delegation, I should add that. Uh, everybody stand by. Up next, first on CNN, senior Biden administration officials are headed to a must-win state to try to calm anger inside a very important voting block. We're going to give you new reporting on that next. This podcast is supported by Sleep Number. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs, so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores? Sleep Number does that. Only Sleep Number smart beds let you each choose your ideal comfort and support. Your Sleep Number setting. Sleep Number smart beds learn how you sleep and provide personalized insights to help you sleep better. All Sleep Number smart beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. Temperature-balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish. So there have been arrests, suspensions, disciplinary hearings. They're shutting down graduation events. At this moment, the part of the protests that are admirable are young people calling attention to atrocities. Michael Roth is the president of Wesleyan University. I would like to make a space for them to do that, as long as that space doesn't prevent other people from pursuing their education. Listen to The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish, on your favorite podcast app. Now to new reporting. Top White House officials are zeroing in on a group of voters critical to winning Michigan. Arab Americans and Muslim Americans, many of them are unhappy with President Biden's support for Israel and its war against Hamas inside Gaza, a war prompted by Hamas's barbaric terror attack against Israelis on October 7th. CNN's Arlette Sines is here with her new reporting. Uh, you see it there. It's on CNN.com. Arlette, this is fascinating to me because I spoke to the mayor of Dearborn, Michigan, a uh, critical area where a lot of Muslim American voters are, and they said, we don't want to hear from 
Biden campaign officials. We want to hear from Biden policy officials. And it sounds like that's what the White House is answering. Yeah, Dana, that's exactly what these Arab American and Muslim leaders will experience tomorrow as senior administration officials are set to meet uh, with them in a series of meetings uh, in Michigan. It comes as there's really been some growing discontent within President Biden's own Democratic Party amongst Arab American, Muslim voters, and also young voters over his handling of the conflict between Israel and Hamas. But uh, tomorrow, uh, there will be several senior administration officials heading to Michigan for these meetings. That includes the principal Deputy National Security Advisor John Feiner from the National Security Council, as well as the U.S. AID Administrator uh, Samantha Power and others uh, as well. And it really comes, it is important to note where this meeting is happening. It's happening in the battleground state of Michigan, a state that Biden narrowly won back in 2020, and one where the Muslim American vote could be incredibly influential in this, this year's election. If you take a look uh, at some analysis from Engage, a, a group that is um, trying to mobilize Muslim American voters in the election. Uh, they note that there are 200,000 Muslim American voters uh, who were registered uh, back in 2020 and 146,000 of them uh, voted. If you take a look at how much Biden won by, he only won by 154,000 votes. So trying to get this community on board uh, will be critical. And the meeting does come just a few weeks after Biden campaign manager Julie Chavez Rodriguez went into the community, tried to meet with some of these leaders. One of those meetings was called off at the last minute after several uh, attendees declined to attend. And one thing that I heard consistently at the time from some of those leaders who did not want to sit down with the campaign is that they wanted to hear directly from administration officials, people who are talking about the policy here at the White House. This is an issue that President Biden uh, is keenly aware could have implications heading into 2024. And these are some of the steps his team is taking to try to address that. So interesting. Great reporting, Arlette. Thank you so much for that. Back here around the table. Uh, Laura, I'm sure you're hearing the same thing that Arlette was just talking about that I was hearing. These are some pretty heavy hitters from inside the Biden administration on these issues going up to Michigan. They are, and that's because the administration, as well as Biden campaign, well knows now that Michigan is a problem for him, that, that Muslim and Arab communities are not happy with him. Young voters are not happy with his policy position on Israel and Gaza, and they want to see a change. And so that's why so many of them, I also spoke to the Dearborn mayor, said that, that they want to be talking to administration officials, not campaign yeah. officials. I also thought it was striking that this comes out, this news from Arlette comes out the same day that the Dearborn mayor said that he's actually pledging to uh, make an uncommitted, he's not committed to any voting for Biden in the presidential Democratic primary that's upcoming at the end of the month. Oh, I didn't see that. That's yeah, really so he, he is, uh, that's interesting that he, along with a number of other uh -huh. local Michigan officials, are saying that they are not going to be casting that ballot. Let's shift this conversation, staying on uh, the Biden campaign and their efforts uh, to win the president re-election, and pose the question about whether or not they're going to be able to leverage the mess that we see inside the GOP. Let's listen to what the president said yesterday about uh, the Republicans, particularly on the issue of immigration. Every day between now and November, the American people are going to know that the only reason the border is not secure is Donald Trump and his MAGA Republican friends. It's time for Republicans in the Congress to show a little courage, to show a little spine, to make it clear to the American people that you work for them, not for anyone else. 
And Carl Hulse, uh, Senator Chris Coons, who's, of course, a Democrat from Delaware, is has a uh, national com campaign chair. I think he has a title inside the campaign. He said uh, the following. The president should go to the border, stand there and say, we have a crisis that I can't fix by executive order. You have to give me the authority. Here's the bill. He should stand there and say there is a way to fix this. And it's languishing on the Senate floor because Republicans don't want to fix the problem. Yeah, what a turn of events, right? Uh, a few weeks ago, Biden's getting killed on this issue. So numbers are bad. Now, whether they can sell this is a different thing, right? They're going to really have to emphasize it. Republicans are going to continue to attack Biden and the Democrats on the border. But now they have a, a pushback. They're, they don't have to just say, well, we couldn't uh, get anything uh, through uh, the White House, you know, that now they say, hey, we had a bill. You can see what we were planning to do. I think it's probably going to be effective. It probably would be more effective if they would have actually gotten some legislation through. So it's going to be a messaging war, but now they have a message. I'm, I'm not so sure, Carl. I think the border deal collapsing is probably the best case scenario for this president. I was speaking to an immigrant activist organizer in Georgia, and he said that he felt as though their communities are, are often the punching bag. Like they didn't understand why this legislation was tied with foreign aid and that that seldom happens for any other issue. And I also believe if it were to pass, it's not like Republicans would be lining up, as progressive chair Pramila Jayapal noted, to pat President Biden on the back to say good job. So you're saying it would be one more thing that progressives would be upset at the president about. Exactly. And so he kind of emerges from this as cleanly as possible it's always for that, now. That, yeah, and it's always that balance. Do I do something to uh, govern <laughs> and do something to compromise? Or will I anger the base of my party? That's true for this president, and obviously we've seen it historically uh, for Republicans. That is, but we have seen President Biden time and time again show that he wants to get the bipartisan yeah. deal. So That's had true. this reached his desk, he would have signed it, even if it would have angered progressives. Uh, and I think that, you know, the bigger picture here, one thing that you're going to see President Biden hammer time and time again is... I tried to make a deal yeah. on immigration and the border. There's other Republicans saying that this deal was needed for me to even have uh, control over the border, that if, if, if the president by executive fiat could have just shut down the border, then why didn't yeah. former President Trump do it? There's that. There's also the Ukraine issue, which is, again, Republicans have abandoned Ukraine because of Trump. They've abandoned action on the border because of Trump. So but that's I a bigger picture for the I want to say really quick, these progressive organizers, they are going to their voters and saying, we need to vote for these Democrats we don't like as a measure of harm reduction. And if that bill would have passed, that argument would have been a lot harder to make. Really but they don't have that many options. No. Nope. Doesn't seem like a lot of people have a lot of options right now. Not really sure why. Donald Trump changes his mind and will not be in Washington for tomorrow's big Supreme Court arguments on whether he can stay on the ballot. Is this one example of his political strategies and his legal strategies actually diverging? We're going to explain next. Hacks is coming back, and so is the official Hacks podcast. With us, your hosts. I'm Paul W. Downs. I'm Jen Statsky. And I'm Lucia Aniello. We're the creators and showrunners. Each week on the podcast, we'll break down the new episodes. We'll also have special guests, cast and crew from the show like Hannah Einbinder and Gene Smart. Hacks Season 3 is available to stream now on Max. Be sure to listen wherever you get your podcasts or listen directly on Max. Max. 
This time tomorrow, the Supreme Court will be hearing arguments on whether Donald Trump can stay on the ballot. That after the Colorado Supreme Court ruled that he is ineligible because of his conduct related to January 6th. Now, under a part of the Constitution that bans its insurrectionists from running for federal office, that is what is at stake here. And that is what we're talking about, the basis for uh, this challenge, which is really remarkable. I want to bring in my legal panelists, CNN's chief legal affairs correspondent, Paula Reed, and CNN legal analyst and former assistant U.S. attorney, Ellie Honig. First, Paula, I want to start with you on uh, your new reporting, along with Kristen Holmes and Caitlin Polance, about the fact that the former president actually plans to stay away from the Supreme Court arguments uh, tomorrow, which is definitely a departure from every other courtroom that he's had the opportunity to be in so far. That's right. What we've seen over the past few weeks is he has brought a, a lot of chaos and disruption to hearings in several of his cases and internal conversations within Trump world uh, are really revealing that maybe that didn't have the benefits that they had anticipated, which is part of why you're seeing a much more traditional disciplined approach to tomorrow's oral argument. That includes at this point, he's not expected to attend. As sources tell us, look, there's really no upside and even Trump understands how high the stakes are. They're also confident in the merits of their case and they believe this can be a win for them. They don't want anything that will distract from that. Also look at the caliber of lawyers that he has. Jonathan Mitchell, former Texas Solicitor General. Dano, this will be his sixth time arguing before the justices and also the kind of preparation. Yesterday and today, the entire Trump legal team, they've been doing uh, mock arguments, moot courts. I mean, this is something I did in law school. This is what most people would do to prepare for Supreme Court arguments. But as we know, the Trump team, not always conventional, but taking a much more disciplined, much more prepared approach to tomorrow's argument, as you said. Quite a contrast to what we've seen over the past few weeks. Let's see what happens on his Truth Social <laughs> platform after it's all said and done, if that is consistent. Uh, let's look at the heart of what they are going to be hearing in the first place, Ellie. Uh, this is a, specifically a question that has come up through the state of Colorado. And as I said at the beginning, uh, the Colorado Supreme Court said that they don't think he is eligible to be on Colorado's ballot because of his actions related to January 6th. This is... Um, not the way most states have looked at their ballots. And right. I think that's an important to point out. Yeah, Colorado is a distinct outlier in the world of 14th Amendment challenges. There have been something in the order of two to three dozen of these challenges brought around the country. And part of the problem with the 14th Amendment is we collectively don't really know exactly how it works. And as a result of that, you can see it playing out if you go across the map. Some states have had secretaries of state who've rejected this. Other states have had trial court judges who've rejected this. Other states have had federal judges who've rejected this. We're literally all over the map, but it's important to keep the perspective here. Only of all those challenges, only one and a half, Maine being the half, because they're sort mm -hmm. of still in process, have said, yes, Donald Trump is off the ballot under the 14th Amendment. So while Colorado is getting all the attention, because this is the one that's going to the Supreme Court, they're really an outlier here. And I think that will be on the justice's mind tomorrow. And then the other question is people listening to tomorrow. Yeah. Once the Supreme Court makes a decision, will that apply, that de decision apply to all states and District of Columbia, et cetera, where uh, people are voting? Or will it just be narrowly about Colorado? So this is a great question. It's probably the question I've been asked most commonly just hanging around the building here. It depends how they rule. If the Supreme Court rules for Colorado, inherently they're saying, states, you do have the authority to remove someone from the ballot. You have to, of course, abide by your own procedures. If that's the ruling, then they're going to have to deal with other state challenges. 
perhaps Maine. Illinois said we're going to wait and see. So if the court rules that way, they're going to be inviting sort of state by state by state review. If they rule for Trump in a certain way, if they rule that the president does not count under the 14th Amendment, if they rule this is not up to the states, it's up to Congress, then it's a silver bullet. All of these challenges are over and we're done. Okay, we're going to have to leave it there. Thank you both. Great reporting, as always. Coming up, Nikki Haley lost another Republican primary last night to none of the above. She's brushing it off, but the question is, how much longer will she go without a W on the board? We'll talk about that next. A tough night for Nikki Haley, who lost the Nevada primary to none of the above. Stay with me here because it's a little bit complicated. Technically, the primary was meaningless. The delegates will be awarded based on the results of the GOP caucuses. Those are tomorrow night. Donald Trump is competing in that contest, but not the primary. So Haley was the only one on the primary ballot that she lost to last night, and she lost to none of these candidates by a two-to-one margin. The Haley campaign is dismissing the results, saying it didn't devote any resources to the state and, quote, we're full steam ahead in South Carolina and beyond. John King joins me now. What do you make of this? Uh, Should we be worrying about who none of the above is going to pick as his or her running mate? Uh, Look, she's right. She didn't spend any money out there to campaign. She didn't put any ads on the air. There's no delegates involved, so it's meaningless. But what the Haley campaign was hoping for, because Trump has the state party wired, Trump is going to get all the delegates out of the caucuses on Thursday night. What the Haley campaign was hoping for is that other voters would come out and vote in this primary and they could claim some symbolic victory. Instead, they lost to none of the above. It's just embarrassing. What it, it doesn't mean anything in terms of the math of the race, but she right now is desperate for momentum. Uh, she didn't get even a bounce, a little tiny bounce out of Nevada, so it all comes down... Literally. She says she's in through Super Tuesday, but Trump has won Iowa. Trump won New Hampshire. Trump's about to win Nevada. South Carolina is fourth. I don't think she can be 0-4. You were just in her home state. What'd you find there? Uh, What you find there is how much the state has changed. She was last on the ballot there 10 years ago. 2014, she won her second term as governor. Since then, Donald Trump won the 2016 primary there, won the 2016 general election there, won the 2020 election there. So yes, it's Nikki Nikki Haley's home state, but from our travels, mathematically, it's still possible. But her state, just watch this, it's his party. The South Carolina shoreline is spectacular. Island Treats Ice Cream Shop, a popular stop in Polly's Island. (laughs) Just one scoop of moose tracks, that's good. Joy Rendulic cashed in her 401k eight years ago to buy the place, leaving Pennsylvania behind. God brought me here. I tell everybody, he brought me here. Rendulic served her first scoop back in 2016. Nikki Haley was governor then, and Rendulic was impressed. Yes, she was a very good governor. But then, and now, Donald Trump is her vote for president. I totally believe that God has assigned him to this position. That is my true belief. Signed him to be the president of the United States. Yes. And that he'll be president again. So I've been what, saying what, that for a long time. <laughs> what happened in 2020 then? Uh, that was a mess. That was um, some illegal, some improper cheating uh, happening. No judge in any state so or many, federal judge found any evidence. And I think so many people hate Trump that. And that Even judges it, appointed by Trump? Even Trump's Supreme Court? that rejected them in the end, three, three of his justices there. Oh no, I just know that there was a whole lot of cheating. If it was God's plan for Trump to be president, why would God let that happen? Because right now the time happened, okay, 
what happened is what happened, but in, and and I believe Trump's coming again. Such Trump is best, no matter what sentiment, is easy to find in South Carolina. A big reason the former president is heavily favored in Haley's home state. He's even more ready now. Mark Sanford is out of politics because he has a very different take on Trump. Sanford was the Republican governor here before Haley. Then he won his old House seat back in 2013. But Sanford lost a Republican primary in 2018 because he criticized Trump's spending and sometimes his tone. I would say, well, I'm for Trump in this area, but I'm against in these different areas. But people didn't want nuance. They want, are you for or against him? Sanford nods in agreement when Haley criticizes Trump for all the chaos and all the deficit spending. Yet, he expects a big Trump win here. That which has traditionally worked in GOP politics isn't so much working these days. I've seen this erosion. You have, too. You go from Tea Party, sort of pro-movement, to Tea Party, to Trump. It's metastasized in ever-aggressive forms. And what started out is a lot of well-meaning Americans saying, look, we got to do something about politicians doing what they said they were going to do into something much more strident is their religion. I mean, I, I, I don't know how else to explain it. Hartsville is two hours inland from the coast. Billy Pierce, here for 70 years except for a stint in the Navy, is another piece of the Trump comeback puzzle. The four years he was president, how was your life? Better. Definitely better. We didn't have the high inflation. We didn't have the high interest rates. Not an election denier. Not a fan of the toxic tone. He had just shut up and, you know, got off of Twitter and that kind of stuff. He'd have made a great president. His 2016 and 2020 votes for Trump track his 1992 vote for Ross Perot. I wanted a non-career politician in there that would do, would run it like a company, run this place like a company, like a CEO. Pierce calls himself likely Trump in the primary. The border is his top issue. Shut it down. And on that, he trusts Trump more than Haley. He's going in to fix the things I need him to fix. I have no problem, be honest with you, I have no problem with putting up two rows and mining the other. So if they come in, you tell them it's mine, you put signs out there say it's mine. Like many voters drawn to Trump back in 2016, Craig Thomas wanted to send Washington a message. It was like, all right, like, this is good. Let's blow some things up. Now he's voting for Haley to send his children a message. I don't think there's any sort of crazy you know, conspiracy between the NFL and Taylor Swift and everything else just showing up for a Biden coronation. To end, Thomas hopes awkward conversations after his teenage daughter gets home from the stables. How do I look at my daughter, who is a huge Taylor Swift fan, and this guy's just attacking Taylor Swift for just because she's going to support another candidate, right? Um, and other things like that. And so having those conversations you know, with them, it, it, it does matter, and it does you know, matter with who you support. Charleston is rich with revolutionary and Civil War history. It is more affluent, more educated, less Trumpy than most of the state. But there is quite a bit of talk about Trump, um, even here. That's a bad sign, Thomas says, for those like him who want South Carolina to somehow give Haley a win and give the Republican race a new beginning. And that's what is so striking. Uh, I've been at this a long time. Ronald Reagan was president the first time I went to South Carolina for a Republican primary. It was 1988. Back then, it was lower taxes, less government, strong military. Lower taxes, less government, strong military. That state doesn't exist anymore. That party doesn't exist anymore. Governor Sanford is right now. Most Republicans say, where are you on Trump? That is the defining question. And that makes it really hard for former Governor Haley. To hear those voters uh, each give their arguments uh, for the way that they're going to vote,
it's so fascinating because they really do encapsulate the different tugs, the pushes and the pulls inside the GOP. And uh, thank you. Great piece as always. Thanks, John. Donald Trump offers an olive branch to Anheuser-Busch after a long simmering feud. Why now? That's next. Donald Trump says Anheuser-Busch deserves a second chance. The company became a conservative punching bag after a Bud Light marketing push involving transgender influencer Dylan Mulvaney. Sales plunged as Republican lawmakers and anti-trans activists called for boycotts. And then yesterday, seemingly out of nowhere, Trump wrote on Truth Social, the Bud Light ad was a mistake of epic proportions, and for that, a very big price was paid. But Heiser Bush is not a woke company. Now, here is maybe a bit of context. GOP power broker Jeff Miller announced that he's hosting a fundraiser for Trump. He is also a lobbyist for Anheuser Bush. Tickets are going for $10,000 each. Thank you so much for joining Inside Politics. CNN News Central starts after the break. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.